So Jesus is concluding this most famous of all speeches with four short stories, four little stories. Each of these stories contain two items, or in some cases, multiple pairs of items. So in the beginning, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus talks about two gates and two roads. But then we move into verse 15 through verse 20, Jesus is talking about uh, two kinds of teachers represented by two kinds of trees. Then you go to verse 21, verses 21, 22, and 23. Uh, Jesus is describing two kinds of people, and even though we didn't read it, and we'll look at it next week, in the final paragraph, Jesus describes two kinds of houses, rather two kinds of foundations. This is one of the hardest-hitting sections in the Bible. Because in each of these four stories, Jesus is calling us to completely and totally respond to him. And he's warning us of the catastrophic consequences if we resist him. So look at verse 13. In verse 13, Jesus warns that one road leads to destruction. In verse 19, one set of trees are cut down and they're thrown into the fire. In verse 21, one set of people to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you. Away from me. And in verse 27, uh, one house that collapses in a storm. Now great people are both caring and principled. Here we see Jesus full of grace and full of truth. Here in these words, just in these four short stories alone, we see spiritual greatness. And what Jesus is doing, and we're going to look at three of the four stories this morning, is warning us. He's ushering three warnings about three traps that he does not want us to fall into. <laughs> Lest we fail to enter the kingdom of heaven and flourish in it. So let's begin with trap number one. Resisting the narrow gate. It's found in verses 13 and 14. Now, I want you to notice the word narrow is used once in verse 13, once in verse 14, but in the Greek, behind our English, there are two different words. Two different words here translated by the same word in English. But the first word narrow means small, it means restrict, restrictive, it means tight. But the other, found in verse 14, means suffering, crushing, smothering. So Jesus begins his conclusion by telling us the, the gate, and he is the gate. The gate to the kingdom of heaven is restrictive. The world says it's crazy, right? And the path of discipleship is difficult. So what Jesus is saying is there's a tiny now, now get this, and this is why this passage is so difficult. There's this tiny little opening. 
that looks like if you enter it, you commit intellectual suicide. That looks from the outside like it's excessively demanding. It's relationally isolating. Uh, it, it just looks so, so difficult. And there is a road beyond that is filled with adversity. But both the gate and the road lead to life, lead to spaciousness. On the other hand, the other gate is broad, it's easy, it's, it's wide. And the road is like a freeway, it's like a highway that is broad and smooth. But that gate, that broad gate, that broad highway leads to narrowness, destruction. So what Jesus is telling us is narrowness leads to spaciousness and spaciousness leads to narrowness. It's the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. Now, that's the metaphor, but the question is, what in the world does this metaphor mean? Well, most of us think when Jesus is talking about these two gates, these two roads, that he's describing good people and evil people. Uh, Church-going people, if you will, and secular people. But no. Because in the three metaphors that follow... As Jesus describes the two kinds of teachers, the two kinds of people, the two kinds of houses, they all look very similar on the outside. They all look good. Um, uh, uh, there's love. There's morality. But inside or underneath, as in the case of the house, something is very wrong. Now let me tease this out. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 6. Jesus is talking about giving. And he says, when, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and on the streets, in order to be, in order to be, now no, honored by others. Jesus is not contrasting people who give and people who don't give. The same is true if you skip down to verse 5 where Jesus is talking about prayer. Jesus is not describing one set of people who pray and another set of people that don't pray. Rather, what Jesus is contrasting is people who want to honor and connect with God and people who want to impress other people. Uh, people who don't live vertically, people who live horizontally, uh, people who want the approval of others. Behaviorally, they look the same. Uh, so Jesus isn't describing horrible, despicable people uh, when he describes the broad road. Now certainly he, that's included, but if you go back to verse 15, or move to verse 15, what we discover is outside, they're sheep, but inside something is very wrong, they are wolves. So in light of this, I want to draw two implications. 
I mean, this is a, a, a fascinating, verses 13 and 14 I'm referring to are just fascinating, but the, the meaning is not obvious. The meaning is not on the surface. So two implications, and first I want to talk, draw an implication out of the narrow road uh, or the narrow gate. Jesus is the gate. And then the broad road, the broad gate that leads to destruction. So when Jesus describes this as a narrow gate, I mean tight and restrictive, what he means is that Christianity is both highly inclusive and highly exclusive at the same time. Now because Jesus is the gate, uh, Jesus is available to anyone at any time on any continent in the world. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your family of origin. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how much turmoil there is in your heart. Jesus went to the cross. It's the point of the Lord's table. <coughs> in order to die for you. And that gospel is available to all comers. But on the, so Christianity is highly inclusive. But on the other hand, Jesus is the only way. Highly exclusive. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. And, and when we're over here on this highly exclusive part of Christianity, this is the crazy maker for modern culture. That's the height of arrogance. That's the height of intolerance. That, that borders on hate speech. And yet Jesus is talking about how highly exclusive Christianity is, how narrow the gate is, because he wants us to enter it that we might experience spaciousness, eternal life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you must be shaken and squeezed. To experience him. He does the shaking. He does the squeezing. It's tight. It's restrictive. It's a narrow gate. It will cost you everything. Probably not a great sales tactic. But truth. Now let me talk about the broad gate. The second implication. It's the wide gate, and this gate describes the mass of humanity, the mass of humanity convinced that they can do life on their own. Whether they're religious or irreligious, it doesn't matter. At the center of their being is this belief they can do life on their own. So their life is all about proving themselves significant, worthy, uh, establishing, if you will, a good record, by uh, good performances, uh, good accomplishments, uh, um, raising a good family, doing this or that, uh, serving others. And it's all about me establishing my significance. And by the way, if God exists, he will reward me because the good will outweigh the bad in my life. And that's exactly what I used to think before I came to Christ. 
And, and by proving this and by developing this, uh, this record, well, actually, the fact is, God owes me. And Jesus says, this is the road that leads to destruction. To narrowness. And so if you're a student, I mean, this road is filled with students who give themselves to proving their significance, developing their record by their popularity, by their friends, by their uh, performance, by their athleticism, music ability, uh, grades, on and on. It's mom and dads who give themselves to proving their record by how nice their family is, how well-behaved their kids are. And that becomes the basis of significance and security. It's all the rest of us who uh, attempt to uh, prove to the world that we matter, that I value because of my job or because of my income or because of my appearance or because of the people I know or because of the places I go. I haven't seen the new boxing movie Creed II yet. I do want to see it. But in the earlier movies, the Rocky movies, as Rocky is getting ready to fight Creed I in this heavyweight bout, he says something that illustrates this. He says, if I can go the distance in boxing with Creed, then I will prove to people, it's horizontal, I will prove to people that I'm not just a bum from the neighborhood. The broad way is filled with people who are doing everything they can in their life to prove they're not a bum from the hood. And I don't care how religious they are. And Jesus says... Man, I love you so much. I want you to know that road leads to destruction. And is it surprising? Is it surprising that in verse 28, the crowd is stunned? So which road are you on today? Which road do you want to be on? Are you proving your record or are you resting in the record, the perfect record of Jesus Christ who loved you so much he died for your sins, was raised from the dead? Is your life about you? Is your life about God? Is your life lived horizontally? Is your life lived vertically? Let me go on to the second trap. Here Jesus warns us about embracing easy believism. And Jesus um, develops this beginning in verse 15 through verse 20 in the, in the second paragraph. Now, what is easy believism? Easy believism is the notion that, that God is love or there's a force that's love and all paths, all roads lead to heaven. And as long as we love and as long as we care for others, um, we're, we're going to be fine in the end. And all that matters is love. Now in light of verses 13 and 14, these false prophets that Jesus is talking about, here beginning in verse 15, 
are loving people. They're loving people. Uh, they're, they're often great people. They, they talk about love. They want everyone to feel good. Uh, they say, man, you can do it. You can do it. They're, they're encouraging. But they ignore the narrow way where Jesus says you can't do it on your own. Where Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. It's restrictive. It's tight. Uh, where Jesus calls us to humble ourselves and to cling to him and, and to give ourselves to a Jesus-centered, gospel-centered life. Uh, listen to these words of Martin Lloyd-Jones describing what's going on beginning in verse 15. He says, the false prophet is a man who has no narrow way in his gospel. Nothing which is offensive to the natural man. He pleases all. He's in sheep's clothing. So attractive, so pleasant, nice to look at. The false prophet very rarely tells you anything about holiness, righteousness, justice, and the wrath of God. He always preaches about the love of God. But those other things he does not mention. He does not say that he does not believe these truths. No, that is not the difficulty. The difficulty with him is that he says nothing about them. Nothing about them at all. At all. I want you to understand with some wonderful, beautiful exceptions, this is the way culture is going. This is the way way too many churches are going. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, God warns Jeremiah the prophet about the false prophets, and he says to them, they preach, he says to Jeremiah, they preach peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jesus says the way is narrow. You only come through me, through believing in my death for, for your sins. So the question is, how do we recognize them? And the answer, we're told twice in this paragraph, is by their fruit. Fruit means who they are from the inside out. Their motives, their thoughts, their passions, their deeds, their way of life, their, their words. I'm still mad about this. You know, there are certain things that are okay to be mad about, in my case, even though it happened decades earlier. I had just come to Jesus Christ. I was home from college and I went to talk to the, the pastor of the church I was raised in. It was a church that was characterized by easy believism where I never heard the gospel. I just heard over and over, God is love. I never heard about repentance. I never heard about sin. I never heard it about the fact that I was hopeless in the sight of a holy God unless I came to Jesus Christ. I never heard any of that, and I went to talk to the pastor because I wanted to share with him what God had done in my life, in my conversion, and I did. And I remember telling him, you know, I was reading the Gospel of Mark, and it became clear to me that Jesus claims to be the truth, and you either have a relationship with him or you don't, exclusivism. And he looked at me, he interrupted me, and he said, Rob, 
That's what we believe here. And I was talking to a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the entirety of my extended family that attended that church was on their way to destruction. Because he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus is not being unloving here. It's just the opposite. He's demonstrating how much he loves you. He's a parent warning the child. Don't play in the freeway. Uh, that uh, the Bible affirms, Christianity affirms, certain things are right and certain things are wrong. is not hate speech, it's reality. We can live no other way. So you have a choice. Two ways. The world says truth is relative or there is no truth. It's just a matter of personal opinion. Both, by the way, which are truth claims. To say there is no truth is to claim truth. To say all truth is relative and there are multiple paths to, to whatever is also a truth claim. Uh, that's the, what the world says. Jesus says, no, there is absolute truth. I am the truth. And your eternal destiny depends on whether or not you embrace my truth. And so I want you to hear my anger. My extended family was destroyed by the absence of truth. And I don't want that for you or your family. And that's Jesus' point. He's not being harsh. He's being honest and loving. So let's go on. The final trap in this paragraph that begins in verse 21. What is Jesus warning us about here? He's warning us about having religion without a relationship, a relationship with him. This is the most difficult passage of all. I mean, it's in the sense that it's the hardest hitting. In the first paragraph that begins in verse 13, that paragraph is about how we can move out from outside to inside the kingdom of heaven. And the next paragraph that starts in verse 15, it's about how outsiders pretend to be insiders. And in this final paragraph, it's about people, now hear me, who think they're insiders, but they're not. Because they've settled for religion, going to church, whatever. A spirituality, without a personal relationship with Jesus. Now the question is, who in the world are these people? Well, look at verse 21. According to verse 21, these people believe Jesus is God. They call him Lord. In addition, apparently they have some sort of emotional connection with Jesus because they don't merely say Lord, they say Lord, Lord. And in the ancient Near East, in the Middle East, that was a way of expressing emotion. 
So, for example, in the Old Testament, King David discovers that his son has died. And what does he say? Absalom, Absalom. Jesus speaking to Martha, Martha, Martha. And it's an expression of emotion. Whoever these people are, they were enthusiastic about Christianity, but they did not have a spiritual reality. It gets worse. Go to verse 22. These are people that are also active in ministry. I mean, they pastor, they care for people, they, they show up at, at, at church, they, uh, they heal, they even perform miracles. So there's correct doctrine, there's emotional engagement, and there's religious activity, but Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Away from me. And no is a term for Relational intimacy. This is hard. This is hard. It's hard for me to talk about. These people had religion, but they had no relationship. This should trouble us. I mean, this should trouble you. Not, Jesus is not trying to create unnecessary doubt. But he wants you to examine yourself. He wants you to think about where you are with him. I mean, these people were exceptionally good, uh, uh, exceptionally active, or, or religious, but they lacked a heart connection with Jesus. They saw Jesus as useful, not beautiful. And there's a world of difference. So what about you? Where, where are you right now? How can you be sure you aren't a person who thinks you're a believer in Jesus Christ when in reality you're not? And I want to give you two tests to help you. Two tests from these three verses. And the first is you continue to submit to God's will. So the test is, do you submit to, continue to submit to God's will? Now, not perfectly. None of us can do that. But progressively. Uh, you're a person that says with Jesus in life's most difficult, overwhelming, horrible moments, not my will, but your will be done. In verse 21, notice that Jesus equates Christianity with the kingdom of heaven. And when you enter a kingdom, you embrace the king. What Jesus is saying in these three verses is so many of us try to be good. We try to establish this record. We care for others. We serve. We do this. We're, we're charitable. But, our, but at the center of our lives, Jesus isn't the king. We're the king. And we refuse to let go. To submit to God is to give up your right to determine what is best for you. Now you may believe, you may have an emotional connection, 
you may not love others. And at the same time, never give up your independence, never give up your control. I mean, life at the center is about you. And this inability to give up dependence, independence, this inability to give up control. And by the way, you know why we're so controlling today in the United States? Is because underneath our desire to control is a deep-seated anxiety. Could add rooted in, secu- rooted in insecurity, a lack of faith. And, and, and so for, we cling, now follow me, we cling to this independence, this desire to control, uh, this self-love, and all of that is grouped together. You know why? Because self-love always hates the gospel. Because the gospel demands I give up control. So when Jesus in Mark chapter 5 faced uh, the demon-possessed man, Jesus is just approaching and the demon-possessed man sees Jesus coming and he cries out, in effect, I'm paraphrasing here, get away from me, leave me alone, you're going to hurt me. This self-love, this desire to be in control hates the narrow way. And it's what keeps us from coming to Christ and what, it's what causes you to fail in temptation. Because of your independence, your desire to be in control, your, your self-love. And, and we struggle with uh, this issue of control because we think if I come to Jesus Christ, if I move into the narrow way, he's going to ask me to do something I don't want to do. Of course, Jesus is going to ask you to do things you don't want to do. Do you think Noah wanted to spend a bulk of his life building an ark? <laughs> Or Moses wanted to take on Pharaoh, or Abraham wanted to take his son Isaac up the hill, or Jesus, for that matter, wanted to go to the cross. Jesus is the king, not you. That determines how we respond each and every day of our lives to the variety of circumstances in our lives. You and I need a king because we're not perfect, because we're self-absorbed, because we're fearful, because we're riddled with anxiety. Do you really think that your plan for your life is better than the God of the universe's plan for your life? And I'm appalled that I look at my life and see this this, uh, passion to feed my beast, to feed my desires, to be king. So, uh, test number one, have you submitted to Jesus Christ? Do you continue to submit to Jesus Christ? It's how you enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's what it means to call Jesus Lord. Now, let me go to the second test. The first test is Jesus is your Lord. The second test is Jesus your Savior. Have you taken Jesus as your Savior? And the test is take Jesus, take him. As your Savior, receive him. Well, Rabbi, how do I do that? Well, you admit you can't submit. 
You admit you can't submit. You admit you can't believe. You admit you can't love. You admit your arrogance, uh, your self-deception, and you cast yourself, you cast yourself on the free grace of Jesus Christ and his love and his mercy. Now, how do I know it's free? Because he died for you. Think about adoption. I was just talking to somebody prior to this service about adoption. What takes place in adoption? Does a child get adopted because of his or her good behavior? No, a child gets adopted because of the sheer grace and compassion and mercy of the new parents, the new mom and dad. Uh, Taking Jesus as your Savior means you renounce your ability to save yourself, to establish its record. And you embrace him and you tether your significance, your purpose, your joy uh, uh, to uh, to Jesus. Uh, Men and women, you students, God doesn't want your works. God wants your heart. And when you see that Jesus Christ himself took the most narrowest of ways, and experience this incredible, horrific road of infinite suffering all for you, then that will melt your heart. And you will embrace and cling to Jesus as Lord and cling to Jesus as Savior. You know, uh, when I came to Christ back in college, I did just this. I did it. And it cost me every single friend I had. And now, decades later, I look back and the spaciousness and the life and the joy I've experienced, I would have never found any other way. Come to Jesus. If you know Jesus as your Savior, cling to him. He's warning you because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, give us the grace to hear. Give us the grace to respond. As we give to you now, We give to you as an act of submission and worship and love. In Jesus' name, amen.